Well, it's great to be with you all again uh, as we continue our tour through Acts. And uh, it's always a joy to come and see you all. Now, this morning's theme that Andy has given us is U-turn, sort of play on words. And uh, I was going to invite you to stand up, you know, face the wall and then turn back to me. And I thought you might really think I thought you were a bunch of kids. And uh, I didn't want to lose your friendship at that point. But you get the the sentiment. But I would like to say uh, thank you particularly to Paul and to Rob for their leading of uh, our worship so far together. It's great. You can be wrong, or you can be right. This morning, I was wrong. I went to your lavatory, and I was struck by your generous hospitality. Because in the corner was a little tub, and it said, Happy Snacks. I looked again and actually realised it wasn't happy snacks, it was nappy sacks. (laughs) In the same way, Paul, Saul, thinks originally Messiah's to come. Messiah's to come. He has an encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus that you looked at last week. And he realises he'd got it wrong, and in fact, Messiah's come. So if you think of nothing else this morning, think of those nappy sacks and not the happy sacks. There's half a dozen themes I'd like to look at this morning, but uh, don't worry, we don't spend as much time on each of them. So when you get to the second one and you think, Simon's taking an awful long time, we're going to be here till tea time, that's not the case. I want to think, first of all, about someone misunderstood because they didn't know his story. Someone of surprises who could reason. Someone with enemies who needs friends. Someone in need of an advocate. Someone opposed who submits to his fellow believers. Someone both necessary and unnecessary to church growth. So first of all, let's go in and we're going to consider that second half of verse 19. Someone misunderstood because they didn't know his story. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Let's recap briefly. If you were here last week, you would have heard about the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus, very timely in the news, and how he receives the Holy Spirit after uh, his hands are laid on uh, by Ananias. And uh, he's commissioned for service and for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And also his persecution as a follower of Jesus is revealed to him by the Lord just prior to that. 
In terms of time scale, and I don't want to go into this, but if you, if you go into Galatians 1 and about um, verse 11 and you read through to chapter 2, you get a, you get a sense of the time scale because the way that Luke has written Acts here, it all gets concertina together and we can kind of think it all happened pretty rapidly. But what we do know is that after his conversion, he starts to minister for a brief while and then... By correlating what happens in, in the account in Galatians, we know that he went to the desert in Arabia for a while. And it's almost as if God was doing something very quietly in his heart in those times. We'll think about that later on. And then he comes back to minister in Damascus. And after he's been in Damascus for a while, we'll see he has to go to Jerusalem. Then he goes to uh, Caesarea. And he eventually gets sent off to Tarsus, and then in the weeks to come, you'll consider he's called back from Tarsus. So he's from pillar to post, this guy. So he was misunderstood because they didn't know his story. And they're fearful. Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? I really want to major on verse 22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now let's think, how did Paul know all the stuff about Jesus? Well, let's not forget that he was an eminent Jew. He'd been taught in the Jewish scriptures. He knew all the prophecies, but of course he'd misapplied them up to that point. So he has a revelation of Jesus appearing to him on the Damascus road. But also he had been watching the disciples as they'd been preaching. He was definitely there when Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7. We're told that he was stood on the edge uh, of that event and he held Stephen's cloak uh, covered in blood. He had probably heard Peter proclaiming earlier on in Acts how the Old Testament scriptures were being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So it was all weaving itself together. Then suddenly this encounter with God on the road to Damascus puts it all into place. And what Paul starts to do now, he gets knitting. Now I don't know if any of you like knitting and I've forgotten my prop. What a grotty preacher. But I have bought a knitting needle and some wool. Because I want you to remember that this is what Paul starts to do. There's a lovely Greek word called sumbabizo, and it means get knitting. Knitting together in the sense of the word joining sinew and flesh and bone and all that sort of stuff. How we're knit together in our mother's womb. And he starts to knit together where these people are using their experience so far. And then weaves in elements of the gospel. And you see it not only here, but you see it later uh, in Acts 17 when he's at Athens. And you'll deal with that in future weeks. But he says there, I see you're very religious. So he starts from the point where these people are. The Jews, the devout Jews, knew their Old Testament scriptures as we call them, inside out. And so he starts with what they know. Now, can a knitter here tell me how you make a jumper, please? 
Do you, do you make it in one go? Do you just keep knitting and miracle? Okay. What happens? Follow a pattern. Yeah. Start off with the back. Start with the back. Yep. Thank you. Lovely. You sew it together. So, for the sake of those who couldn't hear and anybody who's listening on the podcast, you start with the back, put that on one side, you then knit the front, then you knit the two sleeves, and then you stitch it all together. And that's how it is with Paul as he starts to reason with these people, proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, we don't actually get much more detail in this particular couple of verses about what the logic might have been. So let me help you. Let's imagine the sort of stuff that Paul would have said to his listeners in Damascus. He might have said, "Um, I know that you believe that Yahweh, God, speaks through the scriptures, and I know that you're waiting for the Messiah... And I know you kind of feel that God is pleased with you because you're his chosen people. So he starts with some common ground. And then he might have said, well, how could God be pleased with you if in fact you're living under oppression, under the rule of an occupying force? How could, you be, how could God be pleased with temple sacrifice when actually you do it And you still feel as desperately guilty as before you made the sacrifice. And why did your scriptures end in 431 BC if you believe God is there and still speaks today? Had God gone quiet? And so what he does, he starts to potentially unpick their understanding of God and his dealings with men and women... He gets knitting. He starts to assemble a series of arguments to help them think about God in a positive light and according to the revelation that he's had. He might well have used Psalm 40 and verse 6, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Um, God hadn't stopped speaking. They'd stopped listening. The Messiah had come in fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. And that's been put to death by Jewish leaders. No wonder you're under occupation by the Romans. Because actually you're a disobedient people. This is a sign of God's displeasure, not his sign of blessing. And so he reasons with them. And this whole idea of Sumabaizo is to knit together reasons for faith and building people um, potentially into coming into the kingdom. And he says it's time to repent and find salvation. And you'll find other examples as you go through the book of Acts, in Acts 17 and verse 2, and you'll also find in Acts 26. Similar example where Paul starts at the very point where his listeners are. And there's another interesting point. The crucifixion foretold in Isaiah 53 was written in a prophecy that was recorded written down beyond incontrovertible doubt a hundred years before crucifixion as a means of capital punishment in that region, in the land of the Jews, 
was known. Okay, it had been known in Assyria and other places, but never had capital punishment by crucifixion been used in the time of the two kingdoms. And so he would have said, okay, so explain to me, explain to me this. Why is this man crucified? This is Messiah. This is foretold in your scriptures. This is written a hundred years before, under Alexander the Great, crucifixion comes to your lands as a means of capital punishment. So he would have used reasons and evidence. We can use that similar approach today. Let's think, for example, of a new ager. We have a few of them around, people into crystals and people into all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And we need, with God's help and the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, to be really canny. A lot of New Agers, generalisation here, would appreciate a conversation about the elements, about water, about light. So if we apply what Paul's approach was then to ourselves today, we might start with an exploration with them of things they'd grab hold of. Jesus' claim about being light of the world. That hooks in very neatly to light flowing through crystals and prisms and things like that. Some of the elemental thoughts about Jesus being uh, the water of life and offering true refreshment. We simply pick up elements of the gospel and apply them to where people are rather than it being a one-size-fits-all approach of the ABC of salvation. I'm not deriding the ABC of salvation, but we have to start where people are as we talk with them. Phil Moore, Christian writer, says this, Challenge and exhortation have their place, but so too do persuading and reasoning with people to help them see that Jesus Christ makes sense. Now, we are all wired differently, temperamentally. Some of you will be hugely academic and have got a string of degrees and all sorts of fancy letters after your name. Others of you left school as soon as you could with not an exam to your name. Whoopee-doo, God loves us all, and it makes no difference. But God deals with us sometimes in different ways, and for some people, not necessarily those with strings of letters after name, but for some of us, We need to hear and be persuaded with reason. For others of us, God will meet us rather like Paul on the Damascus Road and it will be a crashing light and an amazing experience and then everything falls into place after that. And there's a hundred ways in between. But there are a lot of people who will respond to reason because they are convinced that the opposite of reason is faith. A lot of people out there assume that faith is the opposite of reason. I'll tell you what the opposite of reason is. It's irrationality. The opposite of reason is irrationality. Our faith really does stack up. Many people feel that they've got life sorted because the good news doesn't apply to them. We need to get knitting to show them the gaps. It might be as simple as when you talk to a non-Christian friend, has anybody had this experience? They say something like, well, that's okay for you. That's your truth. But 
There's no such thing as absolute truth. Anybody have that one? Yeah, there's no such thing as absolute truth. We then have to help them see that if there is no such thing as absolute truth, then their assertion that there is no such thing as absolute truth is itself untrue. Now, that's not to be clever, it's not to be smart, but it's just to help them deconstruct. God has given us minds to think with. He's given us reason as well as the emotions. And so we need to engage with people to help them think through the logical end of what they're saying. If nothing is true, then nothing is true is untrue. There is what we call objective truth and subtractive truth. Now, for the sake of it, I'm going to call uh, objective truth real truth and uh, subjective truth beer truth. Forgive me, non-drinkers. You can use other illustrations, but I like to use beer because it's something I understand. Let's think about a subjective truth, first of all. Buckham beer is the best bitter you can drink. Steve's not quite so sure. (laughs) But that doesn't matter, because actually subjective truth can be true for me, but false for Steve. You might like Haagen-Dazs, chocolate chip cookie ice cream, and someone else actually says the best ice cream is their Madagascan vanilla. At the end of the day, subjective truth, it doesn't matter. It's a matter of conjecture and opinion. We can both be right, and we can both be wrong. When it comes to real truth or objective truth, things get a little more tricky. For example, boiling water will scald you. Real truth or subjective truth? Real truth. We know from experience, from things observed, this stand is made of wood. Real truth? Yes. This microphone conveys my voice. Steve, with his bits and bobs, converts it into something. Well, he doesn't, but the machine does, and you hear it. That is real truth. Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Is real truth. It's demonstrable. It's not subjective. Real truth is really important. Subjective claims are neither right nor wrong, they're a matter of opinion. Faith is reasonable, it stacks up. And if what I've said to you this morning, just on these couple of verses, enthuses you, rather than confuses you, go to a website called str.org, run by a great guy called Greg Kukul, who I've had the pleasure of meeting. He runs a, a ministry called Stand to Reason, based in America, But it's all about the art of apologetics, defending our faith, giving reasons for the hope that is within us. There's another website called reasonablefaith.org, and that's run by a guy called William Lane Craig, who's a professor of philosophy, a fantastic Christian apologist, again, who lives in the States, works at Talbot University. These guys have given us lots of armory with which to engage in a ministry like Paul's in terms of arguing, reasoning for faith being right and true. 
Let's move on to our third section. Someone with enemies who needs friends. After many days, verse 23, had gone by, there was a conspiracy amongst the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Let's remember uh, he was converted around about AD 33 and he stays there till about AD 35. Jesus actually foresees Paul's persecution uh, earlier on in chapter 9 and in verse 16. Um, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So actually, the fact that Jesus uh, has told Paul through that encounter that he's going to suffer is kind of a prophecy fulfilled. And so the Jews are getting steamed up. Josephus, one of the contemporary historians at the time, says that the havoc that Paul caused was as significant to the Jews as had been the devastation of the temple kind of 500 years earlier, maybe 600 years earlier. It was absolutely stonkingly huge because here was this man who had received letters from the high priests in Jerusalem to go to Damascus to sort these blooming Christians out. And then what happens, he starts to embrace their message and he starts speaking against the Jews. And he talks of them being hard-necked and uh, not understanding. We then find someone in need of an advocate. Verses 26 and 27. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. There's suspicion. Maybe it's because he's taken the best part of three years to go and see the, the apostles in Jerusalem, but there is suspicion. But Barnabas is his advocate. He speaks on Paul's behalf and he says to them what Paul has experienced and what Paul has been up to in times of ministry. Can you imagine how difficult it would be for some of those believers in Jerusalem to sit down with Paul and to break bread with him? Because actually, Paul, Saul, had been responsible for the slaughter of perhaps many of their family or friends who were followers of Jesus. And maybe for us, the application today is that we need to be ready as congregations to demonstrate the same grace that the Lord demonstrates in his dealings with us. There will be people who will think are beyond the pale, or they've committed the ultimate sin or they've really spat in God's face, and how can they come back to God? I don't understand it, but God commands us. We are to embrace and to love. And uh, this is what the church eventually at Jerusalem did. Barnabas is a real son of encouragement. 
You'll recall the account in Acts 4. His original name was Joseph. He was a, a Levite, Cypriot, from the island of Cyprus. But because he blessed the apostles so much, they gave him a different name. They called him Barnabas, son of encouragement. And it makes me reflect, what do my leaders, what do my ministers, what do our ministers and leaders think of us? Do they regard us as sons and daughters of encouragement? Or do they regard us as sons and daughters of discouragement? Barclay said this, William Barclay, the church owed Paul to the prayer of Stephen, church owed Paul to the forgiving spirit of Ananias and now we see the church owed Paul to the large hearted charity of Barnabas fantastic 28 to 30 so Paul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews but they tried to kill him When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Sarsus. Hellenistic Jews, the Grecian Jews, were Jews who'd adopted Greek language and culture, but by religion they were still Jews. And Paul resumes Stephen's work of debating with the Grecian Jews. He uh, was himself one, as Stephen apparently was, and so he started where they were, brothers... I'm one of you. And sometimes in our dealings with people, we have to remind ourselves to start where people are, finding some common ground. It won't be necessarily in terms of faith, uh, but it might be in terms of something else. Jesus had called Paul very clearly in the passage that you considered last week. And yet he seems to go from pillar to post because he goes... Jerusalem to Damascus, into the desert, back to Damascus, back up to Jerusalem, and then he gets sent across to Tarsus. That's 700 miles or more. And he's actually out of it for a long time. He doesn't get called back for quite a while. And you'll see that later on uh, when you consider that passage in a few weeks' time in Acts 11. And perhaps it was that that informed what he wrote in Romans 8 when he says, but we, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. He was waiting for fulfilment of God's promise and call on his life. And I simply say to you this morning, has gone, God spoken into your life this morning? Has God spoken into your life years ago or months ago and you're waiting for fulfilment? Be patient. If God has spoken, God has placed a call on your life. He will honour it, but it sometimes takes time. For some of us, it can be decades before the promise is fulfilled. But God, who has spoken, is faithful, and he will perform it. He knows your situation. It's interesting, too, that both Jesus and Paul began their ministries by entering a synagogue and declaring a message of God's salvation. And both, of course, get treated pretty shabbily by the authorities. Finally, verse 31. We want to consider someone who was both necessary and 
unnecessary to church growth. We read in verse 31, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. A bit weird that, because Paul's around and kind of things are a bit zippy and things are happening. And then we read, oh, Paul disappears and actually enjoys peace and a profound time of growth. And it's almost like God's sense of humour, that although Paul was extremely important in God's plan, and we find that through and through as we go through the book of Acts and obviously the letters that he wrote to the various churches, actually Paul has a real grip on this because he says in 1 Corinthians 3, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul, only servants through whom you came to believe? As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And sometimes I feel there's a lesson there that we don't embrace fully. We are not terribly important in the kingdom of God, and yet we are terribly important in the kingdom of God. You think, Simon, you're spouting rubbish again? No, what I'm trying to say is this, that yes, it's vitally important that we all play our part in the kingdom of God and in our life of witness and evangelism, But actually, in the big scheme of things, it's not terribly important because God is the one who's absolutely in charge of it all. And if he wants us to withdraw from a situation, then the Lord will put someone else into the situation. It's all about teamwork. It's not about big egos. It's not about big egos. And they're encouraged by the Holy Spirit. I love this encouragement. The encouragement here is not the Greek word uh, for... Um, encouragement after a disaster. Uh, it, it's, it's a Greek word, paraklesis. And it's, it's kind of the encouragement, strong encouragement, an urge to get on with things. Uh, they're encouraged by the Holy Spirit to get on with things, to go and uh, tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ, to go and see healings and deliverances, and to get on with the ministry that they were given to do. Um, I love encouraged by the Holy Spirit, strongly urged by the Holy Spirit, a personality. Fantastic. And in the fear of the Lord, we don't have time to consider what the fear of the Lord uh, really might be, but it's, it's a life really of surrender to the Lord, it's of listening to him, it's of being uh, wanting, desiring deep, deep, deep down to do his will and to find his purpose for our lives and have real regard for him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and love is its completion. So in conclusion, folks, persecution follows faithfulness. We need to be friends to those in ministry. Sometimes we need to be sons and daughters of encouragement. And uh, don't forget, keep up the knitting, or at least learn to start knitting. And I do commend that website again, str.org, Stand to Reason. It's a great ministry, lots of really good material for you to, uh, to use with friends, family and colleagues.